Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. A lot of other art schools put their students in situations where they were taught to look at each other as competition. We don't need that in our industry. Culturally, like, we don't think art's important already. We don't need to put each other down. The rest of society is already going to do that for us. We're making the studio to make video games for women, by women, to create opportunities for women in the industry, to create games for women in and out of the industry, and maybe that'll inspire people to come into the industry. And maybe all of this, even if they don't end up working with us, maybe more women will be like, oh, I can get into games too. On the last day, we had to pitch twice. One was in front of the judges, and that was its own sort of scary. But then the other one was in front of a crowd of 300 people, and that was like, if this isn't the moment that I die, I guess I can do anything. (laughs) This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA-certified 8A HubZone woman-owned small business specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. Good afternoon. It is a nice Sunday afternoon, and I am talking to Ashley Guchite of Boba Studios. And I am very excited because we've had a bit of back and forth. Now, you have quite the computer story. It's true, I do. Before we get into the computer, where are you today right now? So right now I'm at my parents' house in Ellicott City, Maryland. Um, So this is where I grew up. Is that your childhood bedroom you're sitting in? Yes. Yes, it is. This is not a video podcast. But I do believe she has Winnie the Pooh wallpaper. (laughs) I do. My entire bedroom is actually themed Winnie the Pooh. Do you still love Winnie the Pooh? I do. And I think actually, I really loved Winnie the Pooh as a kid. But I think I appreciate it more as an adult. It like took me a little bit for it to like dawn on me. But our current game has like a lot of the same aesthetics as Winnie the Pooh. And it didn't occur to me until like a year later. I was like, my entire bedroom is like watercolor illustrations, like all of that stuff. I have a bunch of like Winnie the Pooh prints and stuff like hanging on my walls. So I think like in a way I'm like, actually, I've kind of ended up with the coolest bedroom because of that, because it's very much like still what I do now. Well, how does it feel to be back in your parents' house? You've been gone for a little bit. I mean, it's not really different. I'm on the road outside of the pandemic on the road a lot because of conventions. And so that's changed with this year. I haven't been traveling at all. So it's like quite the change to be just in one place all the time. But it has meant a lot of like really, really good stuff with time to work on our game and not have to worry about like, well, if I break it, is it presentation ready by the weekend? It doesn't matter because we're not showing it right now. Describe for people who don't know you what your studio is 
we're Boba Studios. Uh, we're a video game indie development studio based out of Baltimore, Maryland. If you're unfamiliar with what indie means, it basically means that we're an independent studio. In other words, we don't have a publisher right now. So we're, you know, making games on our own terms, raising funding as we can, and to put out games that are like really, hopefully, unique stories of us that we get to share with the world one day. How are you trying to decide where you go off to college? By the time I'm going into college, I knew that I wanted to have like a business that had arts, entertainment, but I wasn't entirely sure like what sector I wanted to start at. Because like me with being inter- interdisciplinary, I knew that I was going to pull on the other things eventually, but like you have to start somewhere. The three things that it really came down to was visual arts, music, and culinary school. Both of my harp teachers, both my private harp teachers had gone to Peabody. And Peabody is a very reputable music school. It's close by. If I go to Peabody... I could take classes at MICA. They're both part of the Baltimore College Town Network. I did apply to Peabody. Miss Michaela helped me make my demo tape. And it hasn't been since I recorded it that I listened to it. And honestly, I'm like so afraid of listening to it because I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know what I sound like. What if it's like absolutely like the worst thing? Like in my head, I'm like, I was good enough to apply, right? But like, what if I listened to it? I'm like, no, I wasn't. So I need to listen to it because maybe I'll actually like start sharing that with people. None of my friends that I have today have ever heard me play the harp. The only friend I think that I had who ever heard me play the harp was one of my friends in elementary school would come in and sit on my lessons sometimes because she was at my house like literally all the time. So like I wasn't going to be like, go stay outside for an hour. Bye. <laughs> and so like all the time, my friends are like, we want to hear you play it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, stage fright. I can't do that. So you think you like art over music because with music, you have to be on stage. And with art, you can be away from your creative product, right? Like you get to hide more after you create your art. You can put it out in the world and be off stage. But with music, you had to actually be there. I wouldn't say that I like art over music because of that, because I don't think that I do like art over music. I think I find art easier to do because of that. That being said, I was also the kid, and my mom still brings this up to this day, who would erase so much that I would literally erase holes in my paper. I think a lot of people struggle with self-talk or being the most critical on themselves. And yet you've chosen a path that is challenging. It is solely built largely on, even though you're working with a team, right? You're really putting something out there that has never existed before and trying to make a living based on people's reaction to that and their excitement around it. How do you manage your self-talk and yet still create? Have you gotten techniques or tips for continuing to move forward and silencing the critic or learning to put things out there? I think I'm still learning how to do that. My team has been like the biggest support in that. You know, they're both artists that I very heavily respect. And they know how to, of course, critique me realistically in a way that maybe I can't do with myself. Now you auditioned at Peabody. Now you're also looking at Micah. How do you end up deciding Micah over Peabody? So Micah came actually to my high school. 
and they presented the campus. And I still remember the presentation because I thought it was so cool. They came to our school and one of the really big things that they stressed was that like MICA was an open, inclusive community about artists lifting each other up. And as I did more and more research about other art schools, I found that that wasn't across the board. That a lot of other art schools put their students in situations where they were taught to look at each other as competition. We don't need that in our industry. Culturally, like, we don't think art's important already. We don't need to put each other down. The rest of society is already going to do that for us. And so that really stood out to me about Micah, and it was huge. And it absolutely remained true when I went and visited their campus. The way that they, like, they worked with me, too, like, I had an admissions counselor that was, like, directly looking at my portfolio and gave me direct feedback. And I'm like, you know, it's not just that they want people there. It's like, these people are also interested in just making me a better artist. I'm really glad that I got in. The school's fantastic. And I've learned so much, not just as an artist, but as a person. They have a work-study program. And I worked in the Office of Career Development. And career development is like, to this day, I think the reason I can talk to people. I was very quiet up through high school. I was less quiet in high school as I was in elementary school, but I like never raised my hand in class. And when teachers called on me, even in high school, I would be so quiet. Cause like, you know, somebody calls on you and like my throat would close up and I didn't know what to say. And my voice would like barely come out and career development was like, they're super encouraging. And my boss, Megan, she was quiet too. I related to her a lot and I always found her like super cool. And she definitely like made sure that, you know, I was doing things that I was comfortable with, but she always helped me push my limits in a way that I was comfortable. Ironically, at this point, I am the person that talks the most in our studio. When we go to things, I am the person that usually goes out and like makes the connections and talks to people. And I I couldn't have done this without that. So I owe so much of what I do now all parts of it, not just the art parts, to the education that I got there. When do you meet your partners in the studio? They're, you're all juniors together. Are you all the same year? No, I was a year older than both Kirsten and TJ. But our fourth partner, I was the same age as. The way that they structure your first year classes is that they have this program where all of the students basically take the same stuff. And you all get to do a little bit of everything. I actually really like that because not everybody gets exposed to different arts. And how would you know if you never got to try it? And Micah is also a really heavily academic art school too. And that was another huge reason why I chose it because I wanted to keep writing. So everybody gets a little bit of everything and you get one elective based on the major. And I originally wanted to declare three majors. And then I was told that the system would literally not take three majors. It would not accept it. It was impossible. They couldn't do anything about it. And I had to pick. So that's how I settled on interactive arts and humanistic studies. Did you have a very clear vision of what you wanted for your life? Do you have a vision of like, not just what you want to be when you grow up, but how your life is like, where you live, how much you work? Did you have that vision? Yeah, I would say so. By that point, I knew that I wanted to start with video games and have a video game studio. With the way that I wanted my life to be, 
I want to kind of be able to do everything. Like I didn't really have a place set that I wanted to live because I want to travel around. I really like to get to know people. And I think that's a huge part of why I identify as a storyteller. And so I just want to be surrounded by things. So I'm not, I don't have a specific place where I want to stay, but I have a lot of places where I want to go. And I want to be able to go when I want to. So I'm like, yeah, we could, we could show our games in this country one month and this country the next month. And that'd be awesome. More than anything, I want our company and like my life in the future to be like self-sustaining. That's important in being able to do anything. It's like, we, we have to live. We're on a podcast, so people can't see my face, but my cheeks hurt from smiling so much. I just absolutely love one, your determination. <laughs> so you, you refuse to be put in a box, right? There's no limits. And your passion for not just art, but life. I love it. Like you're just, everything is out there to be experienced and created. And I just think it's so wonderful. I don't think you hear people this passionate and loving, kind of enjoying all the things. Tell me about how you met TJ and who is TJ? So TJ is the sound designer slash composer of our team. When I was a junior, Micah and Peabody did a collaboration class in my major. So it was an interactive arts and music class. I just signed up for that class and TJ was in that class. And don't tell him this, even though he probably already knows, but like I 100% targeted him because he's wearing a Pokemon <laughs> lanyard. And I was like, I want to make a video game in this class. You had to like pair up with people and make teams. And I was like, I want to make a music-based video game. And I saw him and I was like, that guy, that guy with the Pokemon lanyard would so make a video game with me. <laughs> <laughs> so like, that's like 100% the reason that I asked him. And he said, yes. So like, it worked out. <laughs> and we took all of our classes together, our freshman classes. And I didn't meet Kirsten until I was a junior. And we worked on a game together in Gameplay 2. So that's actually was lucky because that's when I met Kirsten. We teamed up to work on a game together. And it's really funny because Kirsten was, if you can believe it, quieter than I am. The first conversation that we had together, she like couldn't even make eye contact with me and her face was red the entire time. And our third person that was working on the group project together came over and was like, what did you do to make her mad? Why are you guys fighting? And I was like, no, we're not fighting. We're just, we just are quiet people and we have a hard time talking to each other. Were you assigned to each other or you picked? We picked. How did you quiet people pick? Were you like hiding in the back together? <laughs> Honestly, quiet people pick each other because they're quiet. You're like, you're the other quiet one. We'll probably get along. But I actually, I had a friend in that class and I signed up to work with my friend. And Kirsten, I didn't know this until like a year later. On the first day of class, we had to tell each other what our favorite games were. So I picked the game series Harvest Moon. And when she heard that, she was like, that game, I, I love that game. And signed up with me when we had to do that group project later because of that. So we ended up working on this game called Pocket Fox. We actually forgot to name it. 
and on the day of our critique we had to give the name and we were like we never named our project and our teacher was like hey that's like a pocket fox and we were like yes that that's the name that's the name of this game (laughs) and it was about like this little fox whose friends get kidnapped and he travels into the forest to go save them and the game is all based on color so some enemies are like a reddish green because it was all like forest this was actually the first game that i did all of the art for and that was that was so scary but i actually am glad that i did it because a trying new things is great i always want to like make art in the game but i was just so afraid to do it that i would be like somebody else do the art i'll just handle other stuff it's also great now looking back because i never had to be afraid to show kirsten my art because literally the first time we worked together she saw my art so yeah we forgot to name the game and the other thing i forgot to do was to draw arms on the fox (laughs) so our little fox doesn't have arms what do you only have two legs yeah, um, he flies around. And I don't know, I guess I was worried about creating the like fire spell that he used and making it in two different colors, all of that. But somewhere along the line, I just stopped drawing the body of the character and it went into the game. And nobody on the team said anything to me because everyone thought that it was a stylistic choice. And it wasn't. (laughs) But actually, that color mechanic is what inspired the color mechanic for Squirrely Room. So it's really cool looking back that the first game that we ever made together actually inspired like the first game that we're going to release as a studio. We worked on that game and we became really good friends because of that. And the next year, we decided to take a collaboration class, I guess, with Johns Hopkins called Hybrid Games. And I didn't actually sign up for the class because it was a collaboration with Johns Hopkins. I signed up for it because I was like, oh, hybrid games. That sounds cool. What's that? And then they're like, oh, you have to go to another campus. And then I was like, oh, that's fine. I like seeing other things. And they had a bubble tea shop on their campus with (laughs) Boba Studios. That'll come into it. (laughs) So it became like this thing where like, a huge group of MICA students every day would travel over to Johns Hopkins and we took classes together. Did your game two class require special computers or were you able to do this on your own uh, laptop? We all did it on our own laptop, but the IA department had desktops for anybody who their computer couldn't handle it or they didn't have a computer or anything like that. I was one of the few people in the department at the time who actually didn't have a gaming computer. I had a regular laptop. I'd never had a laptop before. I'd always had desktops at home. And when I needed a computer for school, my mom was like, oh, I found this computer. And I was like, cool, it's blue. (laughs) Tell us about your special computer. Now, do you have a name for your computer? I don't. If I have to specify my computer for any reason, I usually refer to it by its type and model. It's an Alienware 17R3. How much is your computer? Mine's about 4500 I have customized it a little bit. When you get it, they like, you go on their website and you can like fill it out and they have like the base models and you can, you know, swap parts in and out and then they make it based on that and ship it to you. I've never heard of Alienware. So tell me about those computers. Alienware is a gaming computer line. They're owned by Dell, but Alienware is like what specifies it as like their top of the line gaming stuff. 
They're great for running games. Um, they tend to like be really strong and beefy. Like my computer is like an inch thick. Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. You won a very big competition at MICA. Can you describe the competition to us and your experience through that process? I think I was a freshman when it was announced that career development was going to take a new section into its office based around entrepreneurship. And I was a sophomore when they announced that that was going to be introduced in the form of a competition. And that was called the Upstart Venture Competition. So the way that the contest worked was that you had to be either graduating that year or one year out from graduation. And that was either undergrad or graduate. We competed two years in a row. The first year, we did not get to the finals. But I knew by that point that like this was a great way for us to go. You know, we, we didn't get it. And we just do it again. We did it. We know the process. We learned it better. We're going to do it again. So by the time we actually did it that second time, we understood the industry so much better. And I think like the first plan, like it made sense. But in being where I am in the industry now, I know I like look at it and I'm like, yeah, that was definitely written from like an outsider's perspective. And so like we were able to like radically change things. And surprisingly, that's not really like what helped us win. We actually had to do a different show other than Upstart to like realize what it was that we needed. So in the first year we did it, I know we'd gotten like a lot of um, votes from the people's choice and things. And it was a lot of like the other artists around us who were like, this is a great idea. And we were like, okay, we're not reaching the judges. And we could tell that by the questions that they were asking us. Like, okay, well, you're making a video game, but like, don't you know that video games are dead? Make a mobile game, which is like not true. Video games are absolutely not dead, and neither are computer games or mobile games. Like, they're all just different. And it really depends on, like, your audience and the hardware that you want people to play it on. Quite honestly, our game wouldn't work on mobile. It's a 2.5D perspective. You have to keep in mind that, like, most mobile games are, like, puzzle games or, like, something, even though that's not a puzzle, like Temple Run, right? You're, like, on a track. So like things that require you to do like a lot of looking and moving aren't great on that platform because people tend to play them when they're in transit. So like us already having like a wacky perspective is like one more thing to make it harder for people to understand and grasp it would be to put it on a screen that they might be playing when they're like shaking up and down in a car or something like that. So we didn't get it that first time and we went and we did another competition called Shore Hatchery. And one of the great things about um, Micah, and I already mentioned that I had worked in career development, so I knew all of the counselors personally. And one of them had told me about a competition she was in because she has a creative small business on the side. 
And she was like, you guys should compete in that too. I know you didn't get upstart, but what about this? So we went and competed in that. It just so happened that the foundation that was funding upstart also funds Shore Hatchery. And we competed and we didn't win in that one either. And afterwards we were like down at the, like the reception where they had announced the winners and we're like standing around with everyone and everyone's like talking and Carol Ratcliffe comes up to us and she was like, you guys are doing something creative. Why don't you compete in Upstart? And we were like, oh, we actually have competed in Upstart, but we didn't win, but we're going to do it again. And she was like, okay, let me tell you something. The reason that your game didn't win this time was not because people didn't think it was a good idea. They just didn't understand why it would be important to fund because they don't understand why video games are important. We were like, oh, okay. So the problem is not like, it's not really our idea in the term that we're making it. It's there's a discrepancy with the medium and they don't understand why the medium is important. Or you're like, well, we're not going to switch mediums. We're making games and games are important, but what is it that we can do to connect? And all of a sudden it was like, let's make video games not what they're focusing on. The entire reason that we started the studio was because like we wanted to make games and tell our own stories and, you know, make games for people like us. And we were like, okay, well, what if we shift the focus? And this had been in the original like conversation about Boba Studios, but it wasn't the thing that was up front. It focused more on like video game-esque things. And we were like, okay, well, what if we shift our focus and how we write it and talk about we're making the studio to make video games for women, by women, to create opportunities for women in the industry, to create games for women in and out of the industry. And maybe that'll inspire people to come into the industry. And maybe all of this, even if they don't end up working with us, maybe more women will be like, oh, I can get into games too. 50% of gamers are women. And statistically, women might start playing games later in their lives, but they will play games longer. Men start playing games younger and then they like start to drop off because it's so, you know, it's so encouraged that like going over to your like friend's house, boys like go play video games together, but then they find other interests later because, you know, video games aren't everybody's like main interest, but you're kind of pushed into that. But like girls don't really get that. And so it tends to be that the women who discover video games tend to play their whole lives. Whereas men, there tends to be like a decline in men playing video games around the age of 30. Well, you told them the scale for the marketplace. You told them there's a limited competition. You understand the audience that you're selling to extremely yeah. well. You have a very clear audience and you have a very clear lifespan of when they're going to buy. And then I think you learned an important lesson, which is so crazy to me, right? It's like sometimes the product doesn't matter. It's how you sell it. Exactly. Exactly. It's the marketing aspect of it. And also, I think you were able to hook into people's emotions, right? Like, yes, what you created is cool and maybe they liked it, right? Which is why you got the people's choice. But then when you talked about why did you create something and why do you have this vision? Like the why, why should your studio exist? And that's where people are like, heck yeah, I want to get behind that. Exactly. And it's one of those things that like, you don't have to like care about technology. You don't have to ever use it, but 
I think that's something that can transcend all of those bounds and restrictions by medium. And that really got people behind us. So yeah, I think people who were like already creative in this space and understanding that like, we got a lot of votes from people that like didn't even necessarily play video games, but they're like, that's like a super cool idea and that deserves to be funded. And like artists often look at each other and they're like, you do a different art than I do, but it's still an art. But when, you know, when you're on the outside and maybe you don't quite, you know, you're not like regularly looking at like how different mediums might do different things in different ways, but they can all still be like equivalent or like valid or important. Figuring out something that like transcended that so they weren't focusing on the medium was imperative. And that was really the thing that pushed us through the final round. We had to, on the last day, we had to pitch twice on a stage. One was in front of the judges and that was its own sort of scary. But then the other one was in front of a crowd of 300 people. And that was like, if this isn't the moment that I die, I guess I can do anything. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to ask how you felt about that. Actually, it was a lot easier that year than it was the first year. The first year before the competition, like the night before, I was like, my chest hurts so badly. And I just lay down the floor and I was like, if I die tonight, then I don't have to compete. And if I don't, well, hopefully we'll win. (laughs) The second one was so much easier. Kirsten and I actually pitched together. Most teams only had one person pitch. And the thing about the two-person pitch, and I don't know that I would recommend it, is that you have to be completely in sync. And that takes so much dedication. And I think that might have been like really helpful in us winning. There's this room at Micah that is often unlocked and it's an auditorium. And we went there like every day for like hours for a month. And we were like, okay, we're just going to do this over and over again. And we kept like dragging our friends along and like doing other things. And we edited our pitch deck so much and we had to like figure out how to time it exactly with being able to change the slides, but only one of us could change slides. And it paid off. Things that are worth it, they take hard work. And I hope that we were able to like show people that like we're really serious about this. We might play video games, but we're serious people too. Um, (laughs) We had a lot of our like friends and family and like Micah family in the audience. One of the offices that I actually worked in at the time came and they like made banners and held them up. I really appreciate people being there and supporting us because it was scary. How do you feel when you won? So happy. But I think like a big part of it was like validated. Like it was the kind of thing where three college students go and we want to make a business. And we sat at like a weird intersection where like not everyone sees video games as art and not everyone sees art as a business. And we're young and we're women and like all of these things that don't make some people think like we wouldn't be cut out for something like this winning that was like, okay, there is support and there is so much love for like the MICA community that helped us get it. They've always been supportive of us. And you worked so hard for it. It wasn't like a whim, right? You'd been working on this and trying and refining and putting yourself out there. And yeah, yeah. To me, the scariest thing about talking to other people or like being social or showing my artwork is putting myself out there. And that's scary because like, I expect 
rejection. I expect that I'm doing something wrong somehow. And it was so not that. It is hard to put yourself out there. It's hard to put your authentic self out there, but that's where the real value is. You have this very unique vision um, and sometimes you can't separate it from who you are and you have to go out and tell your story and learn what's working and what's not working and also learn that sometimes you're not for everybody, right? right you're not right. trying to be everything to all people. There's a great quote by Dita Vontis, which is something like, you can be the ripest, juiciest peach in the world, but there are people out there who don't like peaches, right? right. You could be the very best ever. <laughs> That's a great quote. What did you win by winning? What was the prize? We won $20,000. How are you guys paying for things now that you are out of school? Now that you're all graduates? Yes, now that we're all graduates. Where's your gravy train? I should say that one of the like, constituencies for winning the grant was that we had to spend it all in one year. So what we did with that was we made merchandise. This was our logic. We have this grant now and they are telling us we have to spend it right now. So how do we make that grant not go away? We spend it on things that'll bring money back to us. So we produced t-shirts and art prints and enamel pins and plushies and a bunch of other stuff. And all of that we take around to conventions with us. And we have an Etsy. We're also on the Micah Made store. We don't have stores like technically with our games, but we have free demos on the two websites where we host our games, Itch.io and Game Jolt. And both of those have like donation slots. And uh, one day we will publish a game and we will sell it and that'll help too. But for now, the majority of our funding actually comes from conventions. When we go to conventions, we stylize our booth to look like a living room. And it was something that we came up with for my commencement exhibition. Every student at MICA does two major things as a senior. One is your thesis project, and two is the exhibit where that project is shown. One of the really unique things about that show, as an artist, it is the one time in your life where you are guaranteed being able to show your art without restriction. Because a lot of artists, you know, they don't go on to go and show their work, right? If you're a graphic designer, your work might be shown through like different things. Like you might be like in ads or on TV or like in even paperwork and stuff like that at a company, but you might not ever get an exhibit. And then there are other artists, of course, who are gallery artists. And that's just going to be like the first of many, which it was for us too. When we did my commencement exhibition, we had shown Squirrely Roo two or three times. To put that into perspective, in the two years before we retired the original version, we had shown it 80 times. So the commencement exhibition was the first time where we basically were like, we can do whatever we want and this is going to be a big deal because it's part of graduating and all of the parents come and the families come and Micah invites like a lot of, you know, different people in the art world to come see things. And that was the show that changed the way that we exhibit at every other show. Because like the first time we got into a show, we didn't even technically get into the show that we showed at <laughs> um, because we actually started our game a week before the submission deadline was due. And we were like, OK, we can spend a week making a game 
or we can spend a week thinking that we have a game and then spend the rest of the time until the convention making the game that we claimed that we had to get into it. And so we didn't we didn't do that. We were like, that's ridiculous. We're just going to apply next year. Well, one of our friends got in and we went and we showed at they have like these little tables where anybody can show off like you just sign up for a slot and you just show up and do it. But our friend had a booth. And so after we did that, he was like, um, you should just set up on the back of our booth. We're not using that space. That's just the space where we're putting our stuff. So just like take that space and show your game. It was positively received. So that was really encouraging. You know, it's like the other part to Upstart is like people thought it was worth investing in. This was like people thought it was worth playing. Maybe my like ridiculousness that was like, yeah, when we did our thesis project and I went to everyone else on the team and I like bribed them maybe a little bit. I like, (laughs) I brought them bubble tea and I was like, guys, come (laughs) to this room and sit on the sofa and have some bubble tea. And then as soon as they sat down, I pulled out a PowerPoint presentation and I was like, this is why we need to, um." (laughs) it was a three-part presentation. Part one, we should work on thesis together. Part two, this should be a video game and it should be the first video game in our video game studio read we should start a video game studio (laughs) and then part three is we should make our thesis half preparing for upstart does anyone say no to you (laughs) (laughs) you have such a clear vision about things right like it comes to you in a very very clear way you're sure about how people should fit in You've got this winsome personality to like <laughs> convince people to join your dream or your vision. Does it always work for you? It seems like it does. I think a lot of people like <laughs> look at me and they're like, you're ridiculous. But I think I tend to have good luck in people like going along with it. <laughs> you're the ringleader. <laughs> yeah, that should be like my official title. I love it. Well, that's very entrepreneurial, right? Like someone has to have a vision of what the problem is. And then it's quite a bit of work to actually not just come up with a solution to problems, but actually bring them to life, bring them to life and to not always have it go well and tweak it. And that's probably harder than public speaking, but you know, to each their own, like you, you find that part easy. (laughs) You find the creation easy. I do. The creation to me is like super natural to me, but it is still scary to like show those things off. Oh, yeah. But backed by like a whole group of people that like also support it. And I believe in them. I believe in my team 100%. That makes me be okay with showing people because like I'm like, I believe in them. I believe in what we're doing. It's not scary to go and take our games to a convention. And when people are like, oh, I think you could like fix this thing, you're like, oh, you're absolutely right. That could be better. Or we're working on that. Or sometimes you might get feedback that like, you know, it doesn't necessarily apply, but we always really appreciate anybody who will like give us critique and talk about it from their perspective. Because all of those things are super helpful and they make what we do clearer, no matter like what it is. Describe your game for us. Our game that we're currently working on is called Squirrely Roo Rabbit. It's a 2.5D puzzle platformer based on color theory. So basically you're playing as this character, Squirrely Roo, who lives in a forest where a chameleon gang 
come and like go on a color swapping spree around around the different worlds and they change the colors of all the animals because in the past those animals like weren't very welcoming to the chameleons for being able to change colors you travel around this forest and go and meet a bunch of different animals and like come to the understanding of like how do we make you know everybody talk to each other and happy and you do so by solving environmental puzzles based on the primary colors and the secondary colors and how they mix with each other so that's that's what i mean by color theory it's a puzzle platformer because you're on this adventure in like a environment that has different levels. Platformers are kind of hard to explain if you haven't seen them. They have like different areas where you can like jump or like climb and like different levels to like navigate different spaces. And that in itself is puzzle-like, but it's like about precision movement. And then the actual like environmental puzzles are tied in with when you talk to characters and interact with them. And also interacting with the world and changing colors and things to make things happen. So one of the things that you can do is like you can effectively like make this elevator because there's like this pig on a rope. And when you feed him the color fruit that he likes, he like eats it and grows bigger. And then when he weighs more and he comes down, the elevator goes up and shows you like how you can affect the environment um, with your ability to use color to make different things happen. So you can get further along in the game. And then 2.5D, it's the space between 2D and 3D. So 2D is anything that is flat. And 3D is like the world that we live in where everything is multidimensional. And so 2.5D is the space that lives between that, that you can think of like a pop-up book. And that's like how our game is. So all of the characters, they're like designed to look like paper dolls and paper craft, like all of the characters and things that are interactable in the world, like the fruit, the trees and everything. They're all designed to look like paper, whether they are 2D or 3D. For example, like the characters might be flat, but the trees look like if you imagine that you use paper and cut it out to roll it up to make like a tree and then like little leaves on top. And then everything has a like watercolor hand-drawn layout to give that reflection of like an illustrated child's storybook. For those of us that are competitive, are there levels to get to? How many levels? We like to say 12, but that's not true. There's 14. Oh. (laughs) We call them chapters. And the tutorial is an untitled level. This is one of those games where you have to play through the tutorial to get it because the tutorial sets the tone for all of the story. And then the last level is a secret, but you do a whole bunch of extra stuff after you meet the chameleon king in the kingdom. (laughs) That's like the end of level 12. But then there's just one more part to that that we actually usually don't count when we tell people how long it is. That's our game, Squirrely Roo Rabbit. We've been spending the pandemic rebuilding it from the ground up. And I think that it reflects all of those different parts to it a lot better now. Uh, We have a lot more, the world has like gone under like a huge, both design change and aesthetic change to like capture that that papercraft world, but also to make like the puzzles more exciting, a lot more puzzle focused instead of like platforming focused. Our whole team is so much more like driven by puzzles and story and things. And so like that's the primary focus of what we wanted to make. But it's hard in like when you're in school and you have like these really big deadlines, you're just trying to like make and make and make. 
indefinitely like slowing down and doing all this pre-production where we like wrote out the whole story and we have time to talk about it and rework things, we could see how we could like execute on that vision a lot more clearly. I'm really excited. We're going to be re-releasing that soon. What's the date? I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. I don't have a specific date. It's going to be by the end of the year. It's definitely going to be at MAGFest 2022. We're hoping that that is the first show where we're going to show everybody what we did during the convention. They're like a huge supportive family to us. We're super excited to show it off, especially because that convention is really unique in the way that it has a whole chunk dedicated to just indie games. And that's like not super common. It's easier to find like a convention about material that's more strictly visual, like comic books or like anime and manga and like that sort of stuff than there is video games. But then one that's like focused on indie specifically. Where is it located? It's in the National Harbor. Oh, okay. So nearby. Yeah, that one's really close. And we'll be putting everything. We'll be putting the demo online. And I'll let you know when we know what that date is. Yeah, definitely. Will it burn my computer if I play your game? I would like to say, and it's going to go under a lot of testing before I actually put it out. Yes, please, Um, on your laptop. Yeah, yeah. I would like to say (laughs) that I think it should be able to work on like your standard like run-of-the-mill laptop. Is there a book that you have read that has really impacted your life in some way? The book that has affected my life the most would be the book, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I absolutely love that book. I love that movie. I love Emma Watson. She's super cool. I really resonate like with the character, Charlie. He's the wallflower in the title. And his entire thing is that he like looks around and he sees things. He doesn't like know, you know, what to say about them or to them to make them better. And he struggles with that through the story because people like really... He's quiet, so a lot of people really, like, come to him and open up. And he knows a lot about so much and everything else. And in a lot of ways, he's, like, really idealistic. So he, like, doesn't really understand how the world can be, like, experience so much pain. And he feels like it's his job that he needs to, like, do something about it. But he's, like, so quiet that he thinks that he can't actually do that and he doesn't make an impact. He ends up being like able to learn that his problems matter. For one, he learns that he matters and therefore his problems matter. And like through that, he learns that how he is able to like start the journey to heal himself, you know, just like other people have gotten to do because of his presence. Well, Ashley, I could talk to you forever. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Not surprising, you are an amazing storyteller and you have a lot inside. And I think what you're doing is really exciting. And I love how you have such a clear vision of what you want to create and offer this world and how you present in this world. And I think that's a real gift to be as young as you are and to be that comfortable. I think it's taken me... 45 years to kind of get close to that point. That is a really special gift. And I wish you, I know what you're doing is not easy at all. It's so much work and a lot of learning. And definitely, you are definitely putting yourself out there, which is the hardest part about being the front end leader and someone with a vision. But 
I cannot wait to see the game and to go buy something from your store. And we wish you all the best. Oh, thank you so much for saying all of that. That's all really sweet. I'm very excited to be on this journey. And I feel really lucky every day that like I get to do this. It's been super cool being able to like realize all of this stuff. I've had so many people along the way that have inspired me. So I hope that we're able to inspire other people to also go after their dreams. Like no matter how, how ridiculous they might be, it's worth it and people want to know your story too. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again, and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.